Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. Have a great day. Hey, I'm an alcoholic. My name is Tim. And I'm here this morning because I want to be sober more than I want to be drunk. And the second reason I'm here is because I've been invited to this wonderful conference. Uh, my home group is Eldersburg Into Action. It meets on Monday night at 8 o'clock. My sobriety date is September 16, 1989. Okay. Thank you. But I haven't had a drink today. And I attribute that to grace of God and the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous and nothing else. And what's really cool is I'm not thirsty. <laughs> uh, what a weekend. First of all, I want to thank Linda and Sterling. Your enthusiasm mirrors my enthusiasm for this fellowship. And uh, I thank you so much. Uh, I forgot your name. John and Cindy. <laughs> Two brain cells, one's blinking. Uh, I fell in love with you two two years ago. Jesse, thank you for your quiet friendship. I, I've got to be honest with you. Yesterday morning on the golf course, um, I started to think maybe the theme of this conference was don't drink, pray, and beat Jesse in golf. You know? But uh, thank you, sir. And last, my, uh, my host, Greg, um, he has done a wonderful job. I mean, picking me up at the airport and taking me to the meeting Thursday night and just terrific. I, I tell you what, but I'll marry you if you'll take me. You know? <laughs> it's like, come on Monday morning, I'm waiting on you. Get that Baltimore on, cross the Mississippi. <laughs> uh, thank the committee. Um, you know, I'm quite a few miles from home, but I'm home. Just the faces are different. And, uh, and I just fell in love with all of you. It has been terrific, and it is an honor. And it's because of God's grace, which I take very serious. Um, I am a drunk. I, I, if anybody in this audience is Irish and you had an Irish mother, um, sometimes the uh, Catholic Irish mother, I add, uh, suffered from uh, long-term martyrism. <laughs> and uh, I have a little story that, uh, that tells that. It also explains me that I never thought my drinking was that bad. And this story is about Patty O'Brien. And Patty O'Brien had passed away and was laid out in the funeral home in the casket. Next to the casket was his mom, Mrs. O'Brien. And in come some friends into the funeral home. And they said, Mrs. O'Brien, we just heard about Patty's passing away. What happened to him now? And Mrs. O'Brien, she says, ah, lads, I'm afraid the alcohol got the best of him. And one of the friends said, Mrs. O'Brien, did it ever come about that Patty got to AA? And she said, oh, my God, no, it never got that bad. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's me. I never thought it got that bad. I, uh, a lot like Sterling, I grew up on the west side of Baltimore in a, we call them row homes, well, people call them townhouses now. And they, uh, <laughs> we, uh, I'm the youngest of four children and, um, I, I, uh, my last name's I'm not anonymous in AA, and, and my dad was German, and my mother's name was Cecilia O'Shea. And uh, uh, I had, like, 
like uh, you talked about, Linda, they had a good childhood. I, I believe I came from good stock. I really do. They're not the cause of my alcoholism whatsoever. Um, however, in the row homes in Baltimore, most of the social life took place in the kitchens. You know, the singing, the drinking, the fighting, the crying, and, and, and that's what I grew up with. I, I loved adults when they drank. They rubbed your head. They gave you money to go to the movies. And, uh, you know, they were more affectionate, and, and I loved that. Um, I, I'm very grateful to my parents. They're neither one are with us anymore, and, and I miss them terribly. Um, but when I took my first drink, and a lot of, like, like you, uh, a little before the age of 13, um, it was let go and let Tim. I loved booze. I really did. I loved drinking. I loved you when you drank. And I know you loved me when I drank. I know it. And uh, I just, it was a love affair. I drank for about 23 years. I'm a barroom drunk. And, uh, and a good 13, 14 of those years, it was working. If it was still working, um, I wouldn't be standing here. I don't know when it turned bad. I used to try to figure that out when I, when I walked into Alcoholics Anonymous. But uh, for a long time, the alcohol seduced me, and, uh, and it was my higher power. And that pi- higher power had a face that looked just like Tim. And uh, I was even prior to alcohol, uh, I, I guess I was probably addicted to excitement before I even took the drink. You know, I was like the kid in the neighborhood. I was the first one up, the last one in. Uh, tremendous amount of fantasizing and, and role-playing. I mean, I was Brooks Robinson, number five, with the Baltimore Orioles. I was Johnny Unitas, number 19, with the Baltimore Colts. I was Davy Crockett, had a coonskin hat. And, you know, and all the things that normal kids do, you know. But a lot of you know that, that are my age and older, there were a lot of Westerns on television. And, and that was a big deal on Saturday night or Friday night, watch Gunsmoke or Hop Along or Paladin and uh, I used to grab a shot glass from my parents' cabinet and put iced tea in it. And even my feet aren't even hitting the floor over the sofa. And I'm dropping shots. Because I know one day I'm going to burst through the bar room, slam down, a, you know, give everybody a drink. You know? And I'm seven. You know? <laughs> it was bound to happen. So uh, I'm drinking and... Uh, I'm also 12 years of Catholic school, boys, four-year high school, and uh, uh, I'm starting to drink on weekends, Friday night at CYO dances, and, and Saturday nights at uh, Seton and Archbishop Keogh and Mount St. Joe, and, and a lot of times I wouldn't get into the dances because the nuns or the brothers would smell my breath, and that's okay, because I love nothing better than going out in the parking lot, standing with like four or five guys, passing around you know, a bottle of Mr. Boston Slow Gin, uh, a wonderful wine that we drank, Boone's Farm, Strawberry Hill. <laughs> you know, I love that. Um, I have a brother that's a member of this fellowship, and, and he's seven years older than me, and, and I'm about 16, and he was in the National Guard, and I'd steal his uniform because it had bear real big here, and and, and I'd darken up the, the blonde hair of my mustache with my mother's mascara and go down to the liquor store on Wilkins Avenue. Go, hi, hi, can I have six packs to go? And I had ID because I stole them all from his wallet. And, and you remember the old paper driver's license? All you needed was a royal typewriter and an eraser. You know? See, that was the excitement. I loved that. I really did. I had a lot of fun. It was just incredible. 
And after I got out of high school, and that's 1971, because I had to wear the coat and tie, and uh, I hippied out. I mean, I had a big old Afro bush, the beard and the peace symbol on the jeans and, you know, all, all that crap. And uh, <laughs> I did go to college. Um, I went to a community college, and the only reason I went is because I haven't been in school with girls and, since the eighth grade. And uh, the first semester, I, uh, I took the typical 101 courses. Let me tell you this about myself. See, I'm, I'm great at the sprint. I can't run the distance. I'm a great starter. I never finished anything. You know, the only thing I've ever done full tilt, full measure, is to drink alcohol. Everything else I did just enough to get by. That's why in sobriety, I will never, I hope I never say when somebody says, Tim, how you doing? I will not say I'm hanging in there. I'm not hanging in there anymore. I spent a lifetime hanging in there. But, uh... Anyway, uh, I'm in college, and by the second semester, I, uh, I wanted to lighten up my academic load. So I, uh, I took uh, these one-credit courses, and, 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 and these, this is the truth. I, it was archery and fencing and bowling and karate. And uh, no term papers, you know, no homework. And uh, somebody asked my dad one time, they said, what's Tim taking up in school? He said, space. <laughs> So I, uh, you know, it, it was fun. You know, I had an eight-track player mounted on the deck of my 66 Impala and, you know, Led Zeppelin and Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, and it, it was great, you know. And it, I loved the drifters. I had two older sisters graduating in 57, 59, so I, I fell in love with the Everly Brothers and the drifters and B.B. King, and, and, and it was just fun. It was just fun. I loved the excitement. You know, the book says, I love the effect produced by alcohol. We think the alcoholic, an extreme example of self-will run right. That's me. That's me. When I was 20 years old, I I got thrown out of college. Uh, We have a resort in Maryland called Ocean City, Maryland, and obviously it's on the ocean. Uh, It's very similar to Virginia Beach or Myrtle Beach or even Wildwood, New Jersey. And I decided at 20 years old, you know, I need, I need to have fun now, and I'll start working when I'm later, you know, when I get older. You know, I'm going to retire now, and I'll work, you know, when I get real old. And, and I did, and that was my plan. You know, that's, that's me telling Tim what to do. And I lived in Ocean City for two years, and I had a blast, you know, so they tell me. And um, I was a bartender, and, and I doubt any of you, or maybe just one's ever been there, but... I worked at a place called the Dungeon Nightclub on 4th Street and the Boardwalk. Actually, it was two bars in one. And uh, the Sazerac Pub upstairs and the nightclub downstairs. And I was a bartender. And I worked six days a week. And it was a wonderful two summers. Has anybody in here ever got drunk and had an idea? <laughs> well, this, this story takes place. And this describes my early drinking. Uh, it's about the third week of July. And Ocean City is a family resort, and it's packed with tourists, you know, week long, two weeks. And, uh, and it happened to be a Thursday, and I'm sitting out front, and Thursday was my day off, and I'm sitting out front on the boardwalk, and I've been drinking since early morning, and it's early in the afternoon, and I'm with a buddy of mine. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I went behind the Shoreham Hotel to use the men's room, and I happened to see one of the, you know, those big green dumpsters with the side doors? And I happened to look in there, and I found... 
about a four-foot dead sand shark. Now, this is 1974, and I got an idea. So I ran into the hotel, and I stole, I stole a towel, and I wrapped the shark up in a towel. I went out to the boardwalk, and I said to my buddy Harry, I said, uh, come on down to the water with me. We'll show you something. He said, what are you doing? I said, trust me, trust me. <laughs> so I wade out into the ocean about here. I let the towel go, and I take the shark, just so his dorsal friend breaks the water, and I start screaming shark. Now, this is before that Spielberg movie, right? And, and people were obviously nervous. And I start wrestling the shark like Johnny Wisemore in a Tarzan movie. Right? I got this shark, and I'm beating him and impounding him, and I roll him all the way into the surf. Now, my buddy Harry, you know how a lot of times when you drink all day you lose bladder control? Harry pooped himself laughing. And, and the, beast, the beast patrol's doing the semaphore, and... And I roll into the surf, and I got snot and everything rolled out of my nose, and, and my face is in the sand. But there's a crowd of people, and they're gathered around me, and they're thanking me for saving their life. You know? <laughs> but i tell you what. Wherever I went that summer, and, and, I, and I'm the type of guy that got invited to a lot of parties, you know? And I'd be somewhere, and somebody would come up to me and say, Hey, are you the guy that did the shark? And I'd put my chest out and I'd go, that's me. That's me. And they'd say to me, they'd say, Bear, you're crazy. Yeah. I loved hearing that. I loved hearing that. Nobody ever said to me, Bear, you look a lot like Mel Gibson. Never heard that. Nobody's ever said, Bear, you're extremely intelligent. But I would hear on a regular basis, you are crazy. And I love that attention. We all know that. Like you said, I can see the nods, you know. I, uh, I was three years sober before I told that story because I forgot about it. And, and there's sometimes in, in Baltimore a lot of people say, hey, the shark man. And you know how you, you remember certain parts of people's stories. And, and there's sometimes I don't like to tell it. And, and the reason is sometimes it, it hurts. I think suppose there would have been an elderly person in the water that day. He might have had a heart attack as a result of my shenanigans, you know, or a young child who's afraid of the ocean because of me. My intention was never to hurt you. My intention was you to look at me and go, ain't he neat, you know? And, and that's the best description I've ever heard of myself in AA is an egomaniac with a low self-esteem. And that's me. When I heard that statement, my knees buckled. All my life, when I'm drinking, I was up here. When I'm not drinking... I'm down here. I've never been in the middle, ever. You know? And, and that describes me. And uh, I used to think it was very dangerous to get close to Tim. You know? All my life, I've been going like this. Come on in. Back off. Come on in. Back off. I've never had a successful relationship with a lady as an active drunk. You know, because when I take a drink of alcohol, the most important thing in my life is the next drink. Him, you, them are gone. You know, thank God for Alcoholics Anonymous. I would never equal the shark event again. A lot of, lot of opportunities, you know. I, uh, somebody I was talking about the Catskills up in New York, up there in Anirondacks. I don't know if I can say that right, but I was on a ski trip and rode a food tray down the slopes at 3 o'clock in the morning naked. Uh, very stupid, very cold, the lifts are closed. 
and, and several parts of your bodies increase and decrease, you know. Uh, I just, a nut, you know, I just, I just loved it. I, I love, alcohol gave me permission to do anything that I wanted under the influence. Things that I'd fantasize about or always wanted to do or say I could do when I was drinking. And it was acceptable for a while, you know. What's funny at 20 years old wasn't funny at 35 anymore. And, and like I said, I don't know when it turned bad. I, um, I met a lady in 1978, and, and, and she got pregnant. We got pregnant. And, uh, I, and I married her. Uh, you know, it's the Irish Catholic thing to do. And I spent the next six, six years of this marriage punishing this woman because I had a resentment. She trapped me into this marriage. Uh, and I was 25 when I got married. And uh, I'm the last guy on this planet that should have been married. I'm immature. I'm self-centered. And everything I do is for Tim, by Tim, and because of Tim. You know? And, uh, and that's what I did. And uh, I would, in this marriage, see, I'm an athlete. <clears throat> and I was in a men's, I played men's flag football during the winters. I played men's softball during the summer. I was in a dart league and a shuffleboard league, which are barroom games. And I was in a social club, an athletic club, which is really means a drinking club. And many, many times in this marriage, this wife would say to me, Tim, can you stay home tonight? I'm got to go. I'm, I'm always in a tournament. You know, they, they need me, you know. And uh, she would write me letters on the refrigerator, you know, when I come in at the Three, four o'clock in the morning, and they would say things like, Tim, BGE, which is our gas electric company, uh, we need to pay them. The mortgage company called, we're three months behind. And that's sad. I'm not proud of that. But that's how my wife would communicate with me. Because I'm not a howler and a hitter, but my alcoholism took other effects. You know, I'd look down at my shoelaces. And I'm the type of guy, you know, the book talks about the four horsemen terror, bewilderment, frustration, and despair. And for me, the hub of the defects is fear. And I know some people take fear and turn it outwardly into anger. And I'm the type of drunk that took fear and turned it inside out. And I turned it into self-pity. And I felt so sorry for Tim. Because when I wasn't drinking, I don't have an act. When I'm drinking, I do. And, and I looked at my shoelaces. You know, and this woman would say things to me that we need to have it done. And I'd just look at my shoelaces. And I'd run away. Like a little boy, because that's what I do. I don't like the movie. I get up and leave. I run away. I can't do the distance. Can't do the distance. In this marriage, we have two children. And uh, I have a daughter named Trina and a son named Ryan. And uh, now it's 1980, 1984. My son's two and my daughter's um, six. And my son Ryan had been very sick for a year and a half of his two years. And eventually he had to have his tonsils taken out and Add noise, and they were put tubes in his ears, and and uh, a couple times he was administered last rites. He was that sick with sinus infection and ear infections, and uh, but we're living in Towson, which is north of Baltimore, in my mother-in-law's house, and I'm in this club I told you about, and uh, we were having a bull and oyster roast, and they're very popular in Maryland, and uh, usually they're on Sundays, and they go from like one o'clock to six o'clock in the afternoon, and there's you know, it's open. It's not open bar. It's uh, free draft beer, and they have whiskey wheels and plant wheels and big six wheels and a band and you know all the crudiments. But I told my wife, I said, uh, "Look, you need to go to this bull and oyster roast with me. Um, you know, you need to lighten up and have a little fun." 
So my mother-in-law agreed to watch our children, and, and I got there at 10 o'clock in the morning uh, to help set up and, and certainly not to drink coffee, you know, to get that, get that little edge going, you know. And, and my wife came later at 1 o'clock when the rose started. About 3 o'clock she calls home, and she comes up to me at the bull roast, and I hate telling the story, but I'll tell you the truth. She comes up to me at the roast, and she said, Tim, we got to go. Ryan's got 104 temperature, and we got to go right now. And I said, with all the sincerity I could muster, I'm right behind you. I'm right behind you. I got to Lutherville that night at about 3 o'clock in the morning. And I staggered up the front walk, and my mother-in-law met me at the, at the door. She wouldn't even look at me, looking down at her slippers. And she said, my daughter and your children are down at Greater Baltimore Medical Center. And I find my way down to this hospital, and I find the emergency room, and I find the cubicle they're in, and I flip open the curtain, and in there's the doctor and my wife and my two children. And this doctor takes a look at me. First of all, he can smell me. He knows how I look. And he sticks his finger right in my chest. And he says, I want you out of this GD hospital right now. And he screamed. He says, I'm calling security. Now, I remember that like it happened this morning. I remember... Going out into the hallway and they had that, the white painted cinder block walls and my face was up against the cinder blocks and the tears are rolling down my cheeks and I'm thinking, man, how did I get like this? I wasn't brought up like this. What happened to all the good times? Man, the cold, the Baltimore cold corral bus trips to New York and the ocean city trips and the ski trips and, you know, on and on and on. Where did everybody go? What happened? You know? And that was 1984, and for the next five years, it would get worse. And now I'm the type of guy, Mr. Bubbles, Mr. Clown, Mr. Entertainer, ain't so funny anymore. And he's sitting at the bar, and he's got his arms up on the bar, and he's saying things like, eh, the heck with the Jews, and the heck with the blacks, and the heck with the Koreans, and that's not the four-letter word I'm using. You know, I got profanity on my heart, I got profanity on my lips, And I got tired of hearing Tim talk to Tim. I no longer wanted to hear what I had to say. You know, once in a blue moon, I might have one of those comeback days. But it wasn't fun anymore. You know? Excuse me. Incredible, like Sterling talked about. I meet another lady. Because after this incident with the bull roast, um, a month later, my wife asked me to leave. She said, Tim, I love you. I always will, but you don't know when to stop. You know? And uh, I'm here to report that I've been divorced, separated for 20 years. And my former wife, I do not say ex, because ex means nothing. My former wife and I are like this. We are best friends. And I will tell you more about that. That's the grace of God. But anyway, I meet this lady, Italian girl, Mary Mazzetti from South Jersey. I move into her house, <laughs> and uh, I hear the same things that I heard from my wife. Imagine that. Tim, I love you, but you don't know when to stop, you know? And, and when you talked about my alcoholism, you know, talk to the hand. I'm out of here. I run away. And, uh, and, and you know the drill, and, and I'll get out of this drinking part, but, you know, I'd go out on Friday night, and I'd come back on Sunday, and I'd sit in front of this woman, and, and I'd go, it's my fault. It's my fault. And this is Sunday, right? So for a couple of days, I'd be a good boy. By Tuesday, it's your fault. You know? 
That's what I did. I mean, I gave double time at work. I was the best father, the best neighbor. I cut everybody's lawn, you know, and I'm a good boy. Key emphasis on boy, you know. But you know what I'm thinking. Because the only thing I thought for 23 years was I'm either drinking, I'm either coming off of a drunk, or I'm thinking about my next drink. That's all I did for 23 years. You know, just shucking and jiving, just getting by. You know? The book talks a lot about ego. You know? A lot about it. And it's me. I had this fantasy. When I walked into the bar room, let's say that's the door, I'd hear Clint Eastwood music. You know, like... And I'm sure everybody in the bar looked and went, Hey, he's here. And when I left the bar room, they were all at the windows going, Who was that masked man? That's what alcohol did to me. You know, it's all BS, but that's what it did to this mind. You know? And uh, so anyway, this lady that I'm, I'm with gives me what you, the heat. It wasn't the light. Like you, I didn't get here on a winning streak. <laughs> and uh, she starts to go to Al-Anon. And she'd be going for a couple months. And next thing you know, I pull open the sock and underwear drawer, and there's Al-Anon pamphlets. You know? And I go to the commode. On top of the commode, there's Al-Anon pamphlets. And I swear I saw this one pamphlet that said, If he dies, he dies. Like, holy shit. Jesus. These Italians from Jersey are rough. You know? I was like, you shoot him, I'd shoot him. <clears throat> so I walked into Alcoholics Anonymous in August of 1988. And I walked in that door just like I did the Luke Tavern. Terminally hip and extremely cool. What's up? You know? And, uh, and, like, and like you, I, I, I didn't want to be here. My God, they're going to shave my head. I'm going to chant the rest of my life. You know, the, you've heard both, both speakers talk about that. And, and I'd sit in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, and they're 60, minute long, 60 minutes long. For 59 minutes, I thought about me, you know? And if I'd have had a theme song, you know what it would have been? I'm always on my mind. <laughs> and I'd sit in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. You know how a lot of the meetings had the window shades with the steps and the traditions on them. And I'd look up at the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I'd go, like, they cute. But see, I don't need the 12 steps of AA. I need a lawyer, a loan, and a hair weave. I don't need the 12 steps of alcohol. You know? And, uh, and, and we've all heard the drill and, and it's, you know, and I do, I'd sit in these meetings and I'd do AA math, you know, count light fixtures and outlets and, you know, and I'd be thinking, Jesus, what am I going to do on St. Patrick's Day? What am I going to do on Groundhog's Day? What about Yom Kippur, whatever the hell that is? I'm always on my mind. But uh, something happened in those 13 months. You know what happened. I was attracted. All my life, I've never been an autograph seeker. You know, whether it be politicians or or uh, rock stars or sports athletes or whatever. It just, I, you know, I guess I've been more impressed with myself than anybody else. But... Uh, I, uh, for the first time in my life, I fell in love with the men and women in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I would eventually meet champions. Champions. You know? I, I thought maybe one day 
I will have the God of your understanding will be the God of my understanding. And I admired you and respected you with everything I had. I listened to you talk at these podiums and sit out there in the bleachers and talk about giving a day's pay for a day's work and, and uh, making amends to wives and parents, you know, and, and making restitution, whether it be financial or whatever, to people. And I said, I have never met more courageous people in my life, people that come out of dumpsters and turn around and end up owning their own businesses. All as a result of the grace of God and Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, God, I fell in. I met champions. And I got sober in Baltimore. And they hurt my feelings too, you know. Um, I eventually did what we all do. I asked for help the first time. My last drunk, uh, I was coming back from Richmond, Virginia from a sales meeting. And I stopped at a bar. And I had, I, I remember exactly what I had. I had two vodka tonics and two Michelobes. You know, about as satisfying as an after-dinner mint. You know? And I had to walk out of the bar because the tears were rolling down my face. You know? I was like, damn you, AA. You know, I hear all this stuff in my head. Let go, let go. Easy does it. Thanks for sharing. You know? <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> a couple days later, I went and found a guy that I used to drink with. And, uh, I found him at a, a noon lunch meeting. And I asked him to be my sponsor. And he said he'd be honored. And he took me over to his house that afternoon and he started me on the first step of Alcoholics Anonymous. He walked me through all 12 steps, the first 164 pages. Everything he gave me was out of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. He did not give me any opinions. There's, there's some salesmen in AA. Be careful. Whether it was work-related, being a father-related, or what have you. He took me to the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I am grateful. I have a sponsor, Bill Brooks. I sponsor some men. I'm right in the middle. Good place for Tim to be. I got so excited about AA that if you'd have told me to stack grease BBs in that corner, I'd have tried. And I mean that sincerely. You know, I knew that it was more than just not drinking one day at a time. I knew that I had to change. You know, I knew that this wiring that talks about the restoration in the second step. You know, if I were to buy an old house, i got to tear out the plumbing and the wiring. And that's how it was explained to me. I had to change the way I thought. You know, like I said, everything I did was with me, by me, because of me. And uh, I got excited about AA, and I still am. And I got more to lose. You know? And uh, I got right in with very similar people that are at this convention. Uh, after my one-year uh, sobriety... I uh, sponsored a prison meeting for three years on Saturday night. And there was a lot of Saturday nights I didn't want to show up. And I'd be at McDonald's down in Jessup and my speakers wouldn't show up. And I'd be sitting there going, damn, everybody else is out bowling or doing step aerobics. And I'm at an AA meeting going to prison. But you know, every time that I said that and I went into that meeting, something would happen. As we know, as the grace of God. A prisoner that I hadn't, that wouldn't talk, that was sitting in the back. You know, with a guy with the tattoos and the arms that looked like tree trunks. And he'd come up to me after the meeting, and he'd say, Tim, can I talk to you? Yeah, man. He says, I think I'm in here because of drugs and alcohol. And I'm going, yes, yes. You know, these are the people that you introduced me to. You know, that's Alcoholics Anonymous. That's why I'm sober. You know, I, I love, uh, I was telling Greg, I love prison commitments. It's just, I love everything. I've made coffee. I've been GSR. I've, I've done it all like you have. And, uh, but I, I, I love being an institution rep. Just something very special for me, you know. I uh, 
This has been a place for me where dreams have come true. And I mean that if you're new here today and this weekend, I'm telling you the absolutely truth. My wildest dreams. Like, what am I doing in Montana? <laughs> you know, 16 years ago, I didn't even know where it was. <laughs> you know? I, that's, that's a gift. I, um, my, my dad passed away in uh, January of 1995. And uh, he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And actually, he lived, from the diagnosis, he lived 16 months before he, before he passed on. And, uh, and, and naturally, my brother and myself and my two sisters, everybody picked up the pace and started visiting more regularly in whom we grew up in. And, uh, but Tuesday night was guys' night out. And, and my dad had been to several of my AA anniversaries, and I'm about a little over five years sober, and he'd been to my brother's anniversaries, and, and he didn't know about AA, you know? He, he just thought, he thought my brother and I were like in charge of it, you know? He knew that Mike drank too much and I didn't know when to stop. That's all he knew about Alcoholics Anonymous and that's all he had to know, you know? But he knew he saw us a lot more. And every Tuesday night, and we missed two Tuesday nights in, in about 16 months. We went out to dinner. Now, we'd go over to my dad's and we'd shower and shave him and go out to dinner. He looked forward to it. We looked forward to it. And I'm going to take you to the last Tuesday of his life, and he would be dead by Friday. And I get over to his house, and I don't have to, to tell you what, what cancer does to the human being, you know. You know, he was once a big man, and now he's, you know, 80-some pounds, and, and you know the look. And I get over to the house, and my brother Mike calls, and he says, I'll have to meet you at the restaurant. I'm tied up at work. And what I used to do is I'd put my father in the shower, and he could still shower himself, but I'd hold on to him through the curtain with one arm. And then when he'd get out of the shower, we'd towel him off, and I'd put the toilet seat lid down, and I'd put a towel on it, and I'd sit him on there, and, and I'd brush his hair, and I'd shave him. And then when he would get dressed and, and go out to dinner. Well, this particular Tuesday night, he, he, I just finished shaving him, and, and I just finished brushing his hair, and because of his disease, he had a bowel movement. And he, lost, and he lost bladder control. And he, uh, he looked up to me, and the tears were rolling down his face. And he said, Smoke, he's called me Smoke. He says, I never meant for you to see me like this. And I grabbed him by the face. I said, You're my pop. You're my pop. I love you. You talked about it. And I, uh, I got him dressed, and he was downstairs sitting in the chair waiting to go to dinner. And I went into another room in this bedroom, in this row house, and I got down on my knees, and the tears were rolling. And they were rolling not because I was disgusted, not at all. They were rolling because I was grateful. I got this heart inside of me, like you do. It's always been there. But for the first time, I recognize it's filled with a lot of love. And all my life, I've been taking and taking and taking. And Alcoholics Anonymous allowed me to put something back into the kitty. And I was grateful. And I owe you for that. I will owe you until I am under. You gave me that gift, allowed me to put something back into the kitty, and it felt good. You know, my mom died in 1971, a month after I graduated from high school, and we did the typical Irish wake. I can't remember five minutes of it, you know. I was drunk as a sailor, but I didn't miss an opportunity with my dad. A guy in my home group, Wayne C., did the eulogy. All the pallbearers were guys that I sponsor. AA came in droves. We did the typical Catholic thing, the two nights viewing, and, you know, we stretch it out because uh, we're martyrs. 
But, uh, yeah. AA was there in droves, you know. I am so grateful to be a member of this fellowship, you know. A couple months after that, I'm in my home group, and uh, I assume you people do it out here. I'm sure you do. It was our group anniversary, and and we have what we we call eat meetings, you know, right? And we usually have guest speakers, and I mean, there's lasagna and Swedish meatballs and cakes and pies and shrimp and the whole deal. And uh, we had a rehab by our home group, and and guys from our group and gals would go over and pick up new drunks and bring them to our meeting. Well, this guy in my home group, Duke, happened to pick up this new drunk, and his name's Vince Cardinelli, about six foot four Italian boy, never been to an AA meeting, and he comes to our group anniversary. Now, I mean, he gets to our meeting, he's got three plates balanced with food, and he's like, God, I love AA. <laughs> you know? He's thinking every meeting's an eating meeting. You know? <laughs> so the following week, he comes to the meeting, and uh, he asked me to be a sponsor. And I said, it'd be an honor. And this is in October. And by December, he's drunk again, you know. And and uh, by the end of December, he got out of a detox, a five-day detox out of Baltimore. And they gave him papers saying he's a chronic alcoholic. And in January, so he got ser- in January, he got serious about sobriety. And uh, this guy was on fire. I, I don't know if God threw me a bone or whatever. I used to have to call my sponsor because, you know, everybody walks through the 12 steps the way they're supposed to, maybe sometimes not the way they're supposed to, but this guy grabbed it like only the dying wood. I mean, he's calling me every night. He's quoting big book, you know, and I'm going through the book. Okay, yeah, Bill story. Yeah, I know where you're at, you know, and yeah, I, a vision for you. Good chapter. Yeah, really, you know. And this guy, I mean, you know, we're going through the steps. He's making, he's making amends and, and he's making financial amends and, and he's on fire, you know, and he's about 10 months sober and, uh, he meets his his high school sweetheart, and uh, and after his one year anniversary, he waited in January. He married this girl, the love of his life, and this is January. He's got one year of sobriety, you know. In March, he got married. In April, he was diagnosed with Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, and by September, he'd be dead. And I tell this story because see. You never know. I never know who the teacher is or who the student is. And if you know anything about Lou Gehrig's disease, eventually you'll lose the ability to speak. And just before that happened, and Vince was a Vietnam veteran, and uh, and he was being a big guy, like I told you, and when the hospice was coming in twice a week, they couldn't put him in the shower. I don't know what this affinity with showers I have, but I, uh, I would help put him in the shower. I'd get in gym shorts and... And because uh, he's a big man, and the hospice couldn't lift him, and uh, and we'd laugh, you know. And uh, but just before he lost the ability of speech, you know what he told me one night? He said, "Tim, I'm an alcoholic. I believe I was born an alcoholic, you know. And as far as Lou Gehrig's disease, it's the way the cards go. But Tim, if it wasn't for Alcoholics Anonymous, I'd be dying all by myself in a VA hospital in Baltimore." You know, I did one of these. These are the people that God's put in my life. And the man died with dignity and respect. And he died a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous with more courage than I'll ever muster. You know, Stu B. back in Baltimore says, God gives the heavy crosses to the heavy horses. You know, I, uh, I know I don't talk a lot about the steps. But they're, they're the reason I'm here. 
I love all the steps there, the guardrails of my life. Third step, of course, for some reason being my favorite, only for the fact that I love our third step prayer. I've never seen it before, Alcoholics Anonymous. I know the Lord's Prayer. I've seen that. I know the prayer of St. Francis, which is our 11-step prayer. And, and I love the seven-step prayer. And I can say with all honesty, maybe not always in the morning, but in the course of the day, I say that third-step prayer. And when I say those words, God, I offer myself to thee, something happens to this drunk. These, these fists unclench and something comes in. And I love that third line. Relieve me of the bondage of self. Because there's two things that separate me from the grace of God. One, obviously, is alcohol. The second's ego. And I keep them in check. I walk around on the planet Earth like a man. Like a man. And you gave me that. You know? A lot of wonder if I told you about my dad and I told you about Vince. And it's just been an honor. Um... The loves of my life for my two children. I'm a single man, and, and that's just the way it is, and I accept it and have no problem with it. I have two children, and Trina was 10 when I got sober, and Ryan was 6, and now they're 23, and soon Trina, my daughter, will soon be 27. She's married. I have a 4-year-old granddaughter named Tristan, and she looks like she just got off the boat from Ireland because both my kids are handsome. They look like their mom. they got dark eyes and dark hair. And uh, I have my granddaughter quite often... On weekends, just for myself, and I'm pop pop bear, you know, and uh, and I love her, and she's a good child. But when I pick her up on Friday night and I take her home on Sunday, I have to say to her, Tristan, you know, because all weekends pop 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 needs a little quiet time. <laughs> you know? And you talked about your daughter getting married, and I've got to tell you, my daughter went through a couple of squirrels before the man she married, you know, and the program does work. So does the serenity prayer. <laughs> I'm like, oh, God. But uh, she met a man, and she married him. If you notice tonight, you probably didn't notice, but I'm wearing an army ring. My son Ryan is in Iraq. He's in Mosul or Mosul or Mosul or whatever you call it. Uh, but he's been there for 11 months in the United States Army. And, uh, and if you're a mom and dad, you know what that feels like. It's been a long 11 months, and he's due home in about six weeks. And uh, he's my baby. He's my 23-year-old baby. And I love him to death. When he came home in early May for R&R, and he said to me via email, he said, Dad, I want my first night to be with you. And, and it, he spent the first two nights with me and then down to see his mom and his sister on the Eastern Shore. And then he went to Miami to uh, see his girlfriend, who he ended up marrying. And uh, that was a surprise. Uh, cute little girl from Honduras. And uh, she's a doll baby. And then uh, he came back and spent the last night with me. And, and Ryan and I have had many, many heavy discussions, you know, I'm sure like you have with your boys. And we talk about God and we talk about the Nazarene and we talk about life, you know. And, uh, and once again, this night before we left, we had a nice dinner and I'm, I'm thanking him. You know, I, I said, Ryan, when, when you left, I asked you to be brave, but I also asked you to be merciful, you know. And I'm real proud of you, son. I'm real proud of you. And he said, Dad, stop congratulating me. Stop telling me you're proud of me. He says, if I got faith and I got courage and I've got dignity, it's because of you. You know? And if he got it from me, you know where I got it. I got it from you. And you gave it to my son. You know? 
because the ob, uh, you know, the obviously to him getting hurt in any way or any of the men and young women and men over there is I don't want him to come home this macho warped kid, you know. And so far as I can tell, it's all intact. Because you know what he talked about when he was home? He talked about the children. He loves the children. You know, I mean, he would tell me some of the gory stuff that he wouldn't tell his mom. And, but, uh, you know, he'll get through it. And, and it's been quite a journey. You also know a lot of you, one of my dreams in sobriety because of my dad. My dad was an antique gun collector. And, and because of where I live is in the Mid-Atlantic is the, the center of the uh, American Civil War on the Eastern Theater. You know, Fredericksburg and Gettysburg and Antietam and Bull Run and so on and so forth. And my dad would take me to those battlefields and, and it got me. You know, some people it doesn't do anything to, but it got me and, and I love 19th century American history. I'm proud to be an American, you know, because Montana, Montana's mine just as Maryland is, you know, and that's a gift of sobriety. You know, I might not like everything that happens in Washington, D.C., but we still do a lot of things right, you know, and, uh, so about nine, almost ten years ago, I became a Civil War living historian reenactor. And, and what a gift, you know. Uh, I get to talk to the public about, and I do Union Army, Army of the Potomac, and I get to talk to the public about what it was like and what we ate and hardtack and how to load a 1861 Springfield, and, and sometimes I get to shoot Rebs and, you know, and, uh, <laughs> but, uh, I gotta tell you this story in closing. I'm, uh, I had a chance, a lot of guys in my unit, uh, my colonel trained the, uh, the black soldiers in the movie Glory. If you've ever seen it, see it. It is an excellent movie of the 54th Massachusetts. And of course, great actors in it, Denzel and Morgan Freeman. Uh, and a lot of the guys in my units were in the movie Gettysburg. Well, I got to do some shooting in the movies, guys in general, which I'm not real crazy about the movie, but, uh, I'm on my, the first weekend of the shoots down in Stanton, Virginia, which is down in the base of the Shenandoah Valley. And, and your mountains are beautiful. And this is breathtaking. But I gotta tell you, the Shenandoah Valley is also pretty. A little shorter, but it's, it's, it's pretty. And, and I go to this first weekend of this movie, Guys and Generals. And, and I get there Friday night and, and they feed you at five in the morning because they want you out in the field at first daylight. And I walk out into this field and we're doing the first battle of Bull Run. Right, and and on the field is all the accoutrements of a battle. You know, fake dead horses and fake dead soldiers and 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 carriages and and wheels and pieces of equipment and 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 I'm like, damn, this is Hollywood, you know. And and being early war and I'm a Yankee, most of my scenario all day is either getting killed or running away, you know. So I never made it. You'll never see me in a movie because I'm either dead or running away. But. Uh, we're doing the first day shoot, and, and we have lunch, and I'm sitting here at the table, and the assistant director comes up to me and, and five other Union soldiers, and he said, uh, <laughs> I want you to do some hand-to-hand combat with stunt actors. Well, self will run right. <laughs> Next thing, Mel Gibson, Kevin Cosner, here I come. <laughs> Jesus. In a flash. In a flash. So after lunch, they, they give us rubber bayonets to put on our Springfields, Right. And, and all five, six of these stunt actors are dressed as Confederates, and, and they walk you through the scenario. You know, it's like a, a jab, and he knocks my gun away, and I go down, and he stabs me. And they walk you through this, you know, four or five times. So finally they go, you know, action. So, you know, I'm boom, 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 and I'm down on the ground. And I'm, you know, all of a sudden they hear the director go, cut! And I'm laying on the ground thinking, now, who's the jerk that screwed this up? 
you know. The director comes over. He puts his arm around my shoulder. He says, you know, without you reenactors, a fine bunch of men. And we do the, you do it for free. And it's incredible, your dedication to this hobby. But son, meaning me, you can't be smiling during a death scene. <laughs> I'm the, you know what. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I walked off that field that night and I was dead tired. And it's nine o'clock and the, and the sun's setting in the west, you know, over the Shenandoah Valley. And I had that blue uniform all day and I smell like a wet dog in a forest fire. And I'm walking across that field and I do quite often what I do in sobriety. Thank you. Thank you, God. You know, this is a place where dreams have come true. You know, has it all been biscuits and gravy? No, no. I lost a job of 18 years at my 10-year sobriety mark. Got very angry, you know. Where are we going with this, man? I got 10 years. Huh? You obviously don't know who I am. You know, what I do, I picked up the pace. Like you talked about, Lynn. I started talking more. I got double-digit sobriety. I'm not supposed to have any problems. B.S. I started talking to these champions I talked about and saying, I'm scared, you know, I'm scared. I was under spiritual attack, and that's what I believe. You know, you can call it the Prince of Darkness, you can call it Whispering Smith, John Ballard Corn, whatever, but he was yapping in my ear, and he said, was saying, maybe you're not going to take a drink, drunk, but I'm going to get you other ways. And he was telling me, you're a loser, you got nothing, right? And I had to pick up the pace, like Linda talked about, you know. Because I don't want to drink. I don't want anybody sticking their finger in my chest anymore and yelling, get the GDA out of this place. It hasn't happened. You know? I'm going to close with this. My sponsor gave me my first prayer in Alcoholics Anonymous. And, and probably like you, I didn't know the Lord's Prayer. And I'm holding the card with the serenity prayer, trying to memorize along with you so I'll know it. You know? But his first prayer that he gave me was a breathing exercise. And when I inhaled, I said, God. And when I exhaled, I said, Tim. God in, Tim out. That prayer still works today. Thank you all. I love you very much. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, Visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.